Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview skeptical author Chris Hallquist. Where does this idea of the second coming come from? It's really so that there's some wiggle room for Jesus to fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies that the first time around he clearly did not fulfill. Remember to visit commonsenseatheism.com for more episodes and articles about God, science, and morality. Chris Hallquist is a graduate student in philosophy at the University of Notre Dame and the author of UFOs, Ghosts, and a Rising God. Chris, welcome to the show. Good to talk to you again, Luke. Chris, your book compares the arguments and tactics of Christian apologists to those of UFO apologists, haunted house apologists, and other apologists for the paranormal. The point is that Christian arguments are no better than these, and in fact, the case for the resurrection is actually much worse than those because, at least for the modern paranormal claims, we have things like living witnesses and physical evidence and original documents and sometimes even video recordings, whereas we don't have any of that stuff for the resurrection of Jesus. And I must say it's a really fun read for anyone who has been exposed to the tactics of Christian apologists uh, whether they come from a layman like Josh McDowell or a double PhD philosopher like William Lane Craig. What motivated you to write the book? So I first discovered Christian apologetics in high school through my church, and it's a little bit of an odd case because I grew up in a very liberal church community, but our church library was very interesting and had everything from Bertrand Russell to a book by Josh McDowell explaining why all non-Christian religions are cults. So it had a book by Lee Strobel, uh, The Case for Christ, which is his supposed uh, attempts to prove the reliability of the New Testament stories of Jesus' life. And that led me to do more digging about Christian apologetics and like the public library, and I encountered intelligent design. And then you know, I started seeing these claims and trying to read up on them and fact check them. And I found that for intelligent design, there was plenty of material already out there debunking the claims of the intelligent design movement, which has been very tightly wound up with Christian apologetics. And really, really the intelligent design movement, you should understand, is a branch of Christian apologetics. Right. But when it comes to debunking the claims made by Christian apologists about the reliability of the Bible, the New Testament in particular, it's a lot harder to find good refutations and good you know, just pieces of basic fact-checking on the claims they're making. So I started to dig, do fact-checking on my own, and realized eventually that I had enough material to write a book unlike anything that had really been written so far. Well, that's excellent. It is a really good resource for that. So let's look at a few examples of these deceptive Christian tactics. First, they often claim that there wasn't enough time between the supposed death of Jesus and the writing of the Gospels for legends to develop, and they quote Anne Sherman White about that. What's your response to that argument? Yeah, so this is a great example of why I wrote the book, because claim that appears in like William Lane Craig and uh, Lee Strobel is that this ancient Rome historian, Anne Sherwin White, proved that big legendary stories about Jesus could not possibly have arisen in the short time period that existed between the life of Jesus and the time the Gospels were written. Just 
for people who don't have Biblical Studies 101, the Bible contains four main accounts of Jesus' life. They're called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And biblical scholars generally think these books were written a few decades after the death of Jesus. We don't really know. Uh, they you know, don't have publication dates on them or anything. So when scholars talk about the dates of these books, they're guessing at the dates. But a few decades, three, five, six, seven, maybe eight decades after, somewhere in that time period is when the main accounts we have of Jesus' life were written. Right. Um, so the claim is that you know, those three to seven, eight decades, it's impossible for legends to have arisen in that time. And the claim is that A.N. Sherwin-White, this Roman historian, proved that. And, you know, I must have first heard about this claim in Lee Strobel's book, which I probably first read my junior, senior year of high school. And I wasn't able to fact check it until I went off to college at the University of Wisconsin, which has one of the largest research libraries in the country. And I could actually find a copy of A.N. Sherwin-White's book. And the book that gets cited for this claim is actually a book on references to Roman law in the New Testament. So it's a very specialized subject. And then at the end, there's a few pages on this question of the pace of legendary development. And the only thing A.N. Sherwin-White does is mention two cases of legendary development in ancient history. He mentions a case in Herodotus where some mistaken story about one of the events of the Peneloposian War, I think it would have been, Herodotus was able to figure out the truth about this story, debunk the false story that had been circulating, and tell the correct story in his histories. And then uh, Anne Sherwin-White also mentions how Alexander the Great, you know, all kinds of legends sprung up after Alexander the Great's death, but 500 years later, Roman historians were able to use ancient documents from the time of Alexander the Great's life to write accurate histories because they had these documents. And the documents that we think Roman historians used to write about Alexander have now been lost, but we think the Roman biographies of Alexander the Great are reasonably reliable because they you know, cite their sources and they discuss uh, reconciling contradictions between their sources, what sources do we believe. Now, this is very, very different from the, the impression that you get reading people like William Lane Craig and Lee Strobel. The Craig and Strobel line is that legends could not possibly have arisen. And what A.N. Sherwin-White is saying is that there is a possibility that legends, even though they would have been formed, would be debunked. It's not quite clear to me what if A.N. Sherwin-White thought that you know, in every case legends are going to be exposed. He sometimes talks as if he thinks he's proved that, but obviously he doesn't prove that. He only gave two examples. It wasn't an exhaustive study. I mean, uh, you hear in Lee Strobel talk about the meticulous study of A.N. Sherwin-White. Well, no, it wasn't a meticulous study. It was just two examples. <laughs> and two examples, I mean, they show you what can happen, but they don't show you what is going to happen every time. Yeah, there's just, it's a, just a complete non sequitur between... Yeah. the conclusion of Aon Sherman-White and what uh, yeah. Strobel and Craig represent him as saying. Yeah. And then, of course, we don't really even need to fact-check with Aon Sherman-White in order to know that legends don't take 30 years to develop. I mean... No, no. <laughs> anybody living in the modern era knows that there are legends that spring up immediately about, you know, celebrities or whoever. Yeah. I mean, one would hope anyone in the modern era would know that. You know, reading some apologists, you wonder what's going on there. Well, another common argument is that if the story 
about the discovery of the empty tomb had been made up, the authors would never have written that women discovered the tomb, as is the story in the Gospels, because the testimony of women wasn't considered as reliable as that of men in the time. So if somebody had just invented this story about the empty tomb, they would have written it such that men discovered the empty tomb. And so this provides some evidence that they didn't just make it up because they tell the story as women uh, discovering the empty tomb. What's your response to that argument? So this is a really interesting one, because when you look at it closely, you run into some very strange facts about the biblical accounts of the empty tomb. So of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, biblical scholars think, I mean, you know, there's no knockdown proof, but it looks like a pretty strong conjecture, a pretty strong inference that the Gospel of Mark was written first. And if you look at the earliest manuscripts we have of the Gospel of Mark, the earliest written copies we have, the, those versions of the Gospel of Mark just end with saying that the women who discovered the tomb uh, ran away. They, they meet this mysterious young man who a lot of people assume was an angel, but, though that's not really said. And then they uh, run away bewildered and afraid, and they're so afraid that they don't tell anybody. So in that version of the story, the women, it's not clear that the women are being cited as the eyewitnesses to this event because it says that they didn't tell anybody. Right. And this is, you know, it's clear that early Christians realized this was weird because then in later versions of the Gospel of Mark, uh, endings were added where the women tell somebody and Jesus appears to the disciples and there were actually two different endings that were added. Um, the longer one is the one that like made it into the King James Version, but there's also a sh what's called the shorter ending of Mark and we have copies of the Gospel of Mark that include both endings alongside each other. Um, there, you know, sometimes there are manuscripts that will have notes that, you know, we're not quite so sure about this part of the story. This may have been a later edition. And then you look at the Gospels of Luke and Matthew, and we're pretty sure that the writers of Luke and Matthew were copying from Mark, and they just throw out this business of the women not telling anyone, and evangelical Christians who want to claim that the Bible is inerrant will say, well, maybe the women were just silent temporarily, but in the Gospel of Matthew has the women running directly to tell the disciples, so clearly there's an inconsistency here, and yeah the inconsistency indicates that people thought the earliest version of this story was weird. And it wasn't that these women were being cited as witnesses because that's what really happened. Something stranger was going on. One theory is that the story of the empty tomb didn't develop until many, many years after Jesus' death, and the bit about the women not telling anyone was used to explain why no one had heard the story before. And I mean, that's just right. one theory, but it, ma it makes a certain amount of sense. Yep. So, yeah, th this is an example of you know, what seems like a good argument at first. You look at it closely, and you really just stumble upon some weird stuff. Well, yeah, you stumble upon one of many, many pretty blatant contradictions in the gospel stories, which of course yeah. makes complete sense if this is just kind of stories that are being shared around, maybe bits of truth here and there yeah. and by different authors. But if you're assuming that this is the inerrant word of an omniscient God, then it makes mm -hmm. no sense at all. Yeah, yeah. So another common argument comes from biblical prophecy. Christian apologists will say that 
lots of Old Testament prophecies from hundreds of years before Jesus arrived were fulfilled in the life of Jesus, and so that this shows that Jesus really is the Messiah who was prophesied about in the, the Old Testament or the Jewish Bible. Uh, what's your response to that? So this is a case of reinterpreting the prophecies after the fact to make them fit the events. And this is you know easy to do no matter how worthless the prophecies are. Like you see with the prophecies of Nostradamus, no one was able to use the prophecies of Nostradamus to predict World War II. But you know, a couple years after World War II, you had all kinds of people talking about, well, maybe we can relate this verse from Nostradamus's prophecies to this event in World War II and this verse to this event, and finding all these parallels between Nostradamus and World War II. And it's something very similar with Old Testament prophecies in Jesus. Because if you look at Old Testament prophecies, you have all this stuff about essentially describing a second King David who is going to rule Israel justly and keep oppressors and bandits out of Israel and maintain the peace and make sure that nobody goes hungry and you know you won't have to worry about getting attacked by wild animals when you're out in the wilderness. There's, um, I think several verses that talk about, you know, you'll be able to sleep in the woods because there won't be any wild animals. This is apparently <laughs> important to people back then. And, you know, the, and then uh, you also get the famous bit about the lion lying down with the lamb in Old Testament prophecies. And obviously Jesus doesn't fit this second King David type portrayal. Yeah. And really, if you ask where does this idea of the second coming come from, it's really so that there's some wiggle room for Jesus to fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies that the first time around he clearly did not fulfill. Yeah. It's just finding little bits and pieces of things that kind of seem similar to the life of Jesus Well ignoring the main thrust of a lot of Old Testament prophecies. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Norman Geisler's top three prophecies that he thinks provide evidence that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. I think we can just look at these three that are supposed to be the best, and I think it turns out they're pretty awful. And so that says quite a lot about the rest of his examples. Yeah. So... The first one he lists is Micah 5.2. And this is the one that prophesizes that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And the problem with this story is, well, there's two problems. The first problem is just that there's good reason to think that Jesus wasn't really born in Bethlehem. The standard Christmas story that kids put on every year in churches across the nation isn't found in the Bible. It's actually inconsistent with the Bible. And the reason for that is that the Bible has two birth narratives, one in Luke and one in Matthew. And the standard children's pageant is a mashup of these two narratives. But the narratives don't really fit together well, and it would be very, very difficult, if not implausible, to come up with a story of Jesus' birth that is totally consistent with both accounts. So what the typical Christmas pageant does is fits in as many things as possible without being totally consistent with either account. And the one interesting thing about these accounts is they both provide explanations of why Jesus grew up in Nazareth but was born in Bethlehem. 
and they just provide totally different explanations. So the Matthew version is that Jesus ended up in Nazareth because his parents were fleeing from King Herod. And the Luke version of the story is just that Jesus' parents were in Bethlehem temporarily for the Roman census. Matthew says nothing about the Roman census. Luke says nothing about Herod. So it looks like what happened is just that people expected the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem, and everybody knew that Jesus grew up in Nazareth. So over time, people made up stories to explain how it could be that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in accordance with the prophecy, but grew up in Nazareth. Let me expand on that, too, because it seems very likely that, of course, both of those stories were completely made up to get Jesus yeah, into Bethlehem, because the idea of a the Roman census that's described in Luke is extremely implausible and there's no yeah, evidence yeah. for it. And the same thing for the mass baby genocide of Herod. Yeah, because it's worth mentioning that the Christian apologists, even ones with real training in history, will say that you know Herod was just such an evil man that you know nobody would have blinked an eye at him slaughtering all the infants in one city, which is ridiculous exaggeration of what I mean it's a ridiculous exaggeration of what we know about Herod the story of Herod's life that we have from the Jewish historian Josephus is actually really worth reading it's a tragic story and basically what happened to Herod is that he had two wives and they both wanted their sons to be on the throne and so they were spreading all these rumors about each other. The sons were basically trying to stab each other on the back so that they would get on the throne and the other wives' sons wouldn't get on the throne. And Herod sort of caught on at first and killed one son and then realized he had been fooled and killed the other sons. So it's horrifying in that he killed all his kids, but it was a product not of Herod being pure evil, but it was a product of palace politics and palace backstabbing and really makes Herod look to be a fairly tragic figure and not this madman who would randomly go off murdering lots of infants on a moment's notice. Mm, that's pretty interesting. Well, of course, the point is that uh, both these infancy narratives look extremely much like they were just made up to make it look like Jesus was fulfilling prophecies in the Old Testament. And so the authors of these Gospels were quite willing to do exactly that. Yeah, yeah. Or, I mean, even if the authors of the Gospels were completely trustworthy, they may have had sources who were not so trustworthy. Sure, they may right. have been believing people they shouldn't have believed. Yep. So then what's the second problem with the Micah prophecy? Yeah, the second problem with the Micah prophecy is just that the few verses after Micah 5.2 go into that second King David idea, the ruler of Israel who will allow Israel to be secure and chase off all of Israel's enemies, which, you know, during Jesus' time, Israel was under the control of the Romans, and Jesus didn't do anything to stop that. Yeah, you can pick out this one little tiny part of the verse and say, well, that applies to Jesus, as was told by two of the gospel writers, but then the whole rest of the prophecy doesn't fit at all. Mm -hmm. And then what's Geisler's number two best prophecy about Jesus? Yeah, the number two is the whole 53rd chapter of Isaiah, which describes this unnamed person, a suffering servant, people often call him, who just goes through great suffering and a lot of people have claimed this is you know, this terribly specific prophecy of Jesus. 
But really, Isaiah 53 could describe anyone who suffered a lot. And after all, it's not like Jesus spent his entire life suffering. I mean, there were points in his life where, according to the Gospels, he was getting invited to fancy weddings and people were accusing him of being a drunk and a glutton. And so anybody who even had a point in their life when they went through great suffering, you could claim Isaiah 53 applies to them. And if you look at specific claims that have made, like, mentions a burial with the rich, well, maybe that prophesizes that Joseph of Arimathea, supposedly the rich member of the Jewish council who supposedly took it upon himself to bury Jesus. Well, Isaiah 53 also mentions this person getting their grave with the wicked, which doesn't seem to fit anything from the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then what's the third of Geisler's top three prophecies of Jesus? The third one comes from the book of Daniel, and the claim is that if you add up some numbers in the book of Daniel, you can calculate the year of Jesus' death. And there's a simple problem with this, and then there's a really embarrassing problem. The simple problem is that nobody did this calculation until after Jesus died. And throughout history, there have always been people adding up numbers in the Bible, trying to get the date of the end of the world, and those calculations never work when you're trying to really predict something. The only way these calculations have been made to work is if, with the case of Jesus' death where you're adding up the numbers after the fact. And then the really embarrassing problem with this argument is that there's very strong evidence that the book of Daniel is a forgery because if you look at the end of the book of Daniel, there is an instruction to hide this book, the book of Daniel, away until the end of times and it sounds like the book of Daniel was probably written long after it was supposedly written and then was passed off as a very ancient document. And this would have been during the Maccabean era, the era that gives us the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah, that it was written in this area, era, passed off as ancient and passed off as prophesizing events during that era that people already knew about. Right. So that, yeah, I mean, it, the book of Daniel is essentially a forged set of prophecies written after the fact that passed off as much older. Well, all these claims of prophecies are really some of the least interesting for me. I just I just wonder, yeah. you know, have, have people read Nostradamus, you know, to, to pay attention to? <laughs> yeah. This is a really old trick, and it's a really obvious one. Yeah. Well, many apologists pretend to be on the side of reason and evidence when, in fact, they explicitly say in their works written for a Christian audience that they are 100% immune to reason and evidence. For example, here's William Lane Craig in his book Reasonable Faith, a passage that you quote in your book. I think Martin Luther correctly distinguished between what he called the magisterial and ministerial use of reason. The magisterial use of reason occurs when reason stands over and above the gospel like a magistrate and judges it on the basis of argument and evidence. The ministerial use of reason occurs when reason submits to and serves the gospel. Only the ministerial use of reason can be allowed. End quote. So, <laughs> i got to ask you, Chris, what's the point of arguing with someone who is so extremely and explicitly closed-minded? Well... I'm not trying to convince William Lane Craig with this book. Sure. Even if he hadn't explicitly said that. You know, for all I know, William Dembski, one of the leaders of the intelligent design movement, hasn't 
explicitly ever taken such a closed-minded position. But I don't expect that all the debunkings of intelligent design in the world will ever get Dembski to change his tune. The people I'm really writing for are the people who are in the pews uh, listening to their pastors promote the work of Christian apologists, which does happen fairly often in the more presentation-savvy churches. They often realize that Christian apologetics is a good propaganda tool and will push it on their members. Or also I'm writing for you know people who aren't really religious and they have religious friends trying to convert them and have religious friends telling them about all the great evidence there is for Christianity. And what I'm trying to do with this book and with, for example, my blog is try to create a resource for people who are encountering these arguments for the first time and give them a resource where they can find out what's really going on. Because I think a lot of Christians, they care about the truth. They care about evidence and reason and science. And they're just being misled about it by their leaders, leaders who are often very unscrupulous who will present themselves as objective scholars, even though, as the quote from William Lane Craig says, Craig isn't at all objective in spite of his, you know, I mean, William Lane Craig will get up in speeches and make these great pronouncements about we need to use logic rather than emotion and we need to follow the evidence where it leads. Mm-hmm. And that's how he presents himself to outsiders, but it's not what he's really doing. And people who care about the truth need to be made aware of that, and they need to be made aware of the flaws in his arguments and the very misleading claims he's making. How important do you think apologetics is? It seems to be growing in importance, if anything. I don't have a good sense of what's been going on with the apologetics scene in the last 10 years or so, because it seems to some extent that a lot of the work formulating arguments peaked about 20 years ago, and now it's just all disseminating and popularization. And even there hasn't been any real notable efforts in popularization since Lee Strobel in the late 90s. So I don't have a good sense of what's going on with that. But I think the function that apologetics serves is not to win over people who are complete skeptics, but it does serve to smooth the process of evangelism considerably. For example, when I was an undergrad, the local Campus Crusade for Christ group brought in speakers to you know, tell all their members and everyone who, would, who they could get to come to this thing about all the great historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection. And he said, well, I came because you know, I have Christian friends who seem to be so happy about being Christians, and I was sort of having trouble believing this stuff myself, so I'd come here to you know, try to be convinced of it. So that, that's one way that Christian apologetics is used in the churches. And it's also to sort of keep people in the fold who are raised in it and starting to have doubts, a way to lure them back in and insist that, yes, yes, Christianity really is intellectually respectable. So in one sense, this idea of we're just going to convert the skeptics with knockdown arguments, that's a charade. But we shouldn't dismiss the role that these kind of intellectual considerations have in bringing converts into Christianity and keeping people in Christianity and evangelical Christianity. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Well, Chris, it's a it's a very good book, and I think a lot of people will really enjoy it. Thanks for writing it, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks a lot.